the following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. listening to the Needle Mythology podcast hosted by myself, Pete Pavides, in conjunction with Flair Audio. This is an occasional celebration of great records and the way they make us feel. And there aren't too many records around that make us feel like the ones my guest today has released over the past 35 years. With Prefab Sprout, he's a master body of work which features highlights such as Steve McQueen, From Langley Park to Memphis, Jordan the Comeback, Andromeda Heights, The Gunman and Other Stories, and 2013's Crimson Red. We may touch on some of these and more besides, but today we're mainly here to talk about the truly extraordinary record he released in 2003, I Trawl the Megahertz, which I'm delighted to say is about to receive its maiden vinyl release. If you've never heard it, all I'll say is that it's quite unlike any record you've ever heard in your life or I suspect are likely to hear. I'm not going to say too much more about it because, um, well, why would I when the man who made it is sitting right opposite me? It's a delight to welcome on Needle Mythology, Paddy McAloon. Thank you, Pete. That's a beautiful introduction. I am telling myself the story of my life, stranger and song of fiction. We start with the joyful mysteries before the appearance of ether, trying to capture the elusive. The last we heard from you at large, those of us who aren't related to you or know you, was uh, you sort of made a brief appearance in our, in our world with a song called America. Was that last year? That was the beginning of 2017. I can't, I can't actually remember. I have since finished the song. There was a, a nice middle section missing, which I've finally done, and intend one day to to release. But it's a while ago, yeah. A visceral response to um, the um, early days of the Trump presidency. Yeah, to the sort of sad news that was coming in on a sort of on a regular modern, basis. Yeah, like, well, it's a, such a velocity it still continues to. Yeah, as happens with a lot of songs, it wouldn't go away. I had a fragment of something. The thing I was trying to say was, "America, what have you done?" That was the line. "America, what have you done?" Yeah, and it morphed into something um, more generally related to that initial um, crisis of blocking immigrants from countries with a Muslim um, population. John Lennon thing of recording um, Instant Karma very, yeah. very quickly. I thought, I don't even have time to go into a studio for this. I'll just sit in front of a, a tablet and 
even in its unfinished state, it's hitting the street, as it were. I love the fact that no one could tell where you were, so it's almost like a sort of counterbalance to like Osama bin Laden in his cave. Yeah, yeah I, was, I knew you were going to go there. I was saying, yeah, it's one of those anonymously posted videos where you think, well, yeah, where could he be? Where could he be hiding out at the moment? Yeah, that was that was deliberate. It wasn't. Oh, okay. I, I, yeah. did, I didn't imagine. Not too it many was. clues because you, you know the conspiracy theorists edge. You can see, and also on on digital media, you can blow up the background to see, if, you know, the CIA could be seeing <laughs> the pattern yes. of the wallpaper. Uh, yeah, it's not a risk you want to take. I understand. Um, one thing that sort of struck me at the time was just going back slightly further mm-hmm. to 2013, and there's a song on Crimson Red called "The Devil Came a Calling," and I don't think I'd heard it for mm-hmm. since. Donald Trump became president. <laughs> the devil came calling, all smiles and flattery. In his hands, a contract exclusively for me. The lyric appears to sort of depict Satan as this sort of unscrupulous huckster, happy to sort of feed his lust for power by issuing promises he's got no intention of keeping. And life's funny sometimes, isn't it? It is, and the assumption is that. Um, Someone who doesn't mean you well will come dressed in the pantomime accoutrements of villainy and they might come as a bland persona or actually think that they're doing good and you'll go along with that because you think, well, he doesn't look so bad, he doesn't, you know, it's just kind of regular stuff. And so my, my portrayal of that, my, in, in particular from my point of view, was a sort of um, thing of in your own life, what have you done? that you kind of should maybe be slightly ashamed of in the way you've gone about things, where you, you're just looking at yourself thinking, did you take the easy option in this or that? So it was, a, it was kind of me and the music business in a way, although to be honest, I have been treated pretty well most places I've gone, you know. But I think villainy does come in a disguised form that we slip into we is slip it, into strange patterns. And is that something, a question you ask of yourself as well? I mean, I don't imagine you would have occasion to really, but... Um you know, I'm 61, and I'll look back and I'll think, could you have done more to help other people? Like, some people do devote their lives to just doing good, whether they're going to be recognised or not. That interests me, whether you've, you've made choices that, on the one level, were very creative, um, and you can always tell yourself, well, a lot of people got pleasure from what you did, yeah. what a record. But then you see people who uh, who really do, you know, it's just plain and in your face that they're trying to help you without anything coming their way. So I do think about that. There is, you know, something in your music. Certainly in the last 20 years, if I was to try and sort of identify a thread, it would be something like, or a message maybe, is that maybe the only thing that maybe mitigates the unbearable brevity of our time here might be, you know, empathy. Yeah, I think there's um, a move towards... Uh, writing lyrics that are um, that someone listening to them will think that not so much that you're on their side, that what you're saying is kind of, I mean, humanistic. I don't know if it's the right word, but it's you have got some sort of warmth or some sort of a, attention for the right things. You're not just trying to sell something. Yeah, you know. So it's been, uh, I think it's maybe been four or five years since uh, since we last met. And uh, is it as long as that? <laughs> it has, is it yeah. really? Yeah, You're I, kidding yeah. me? I, God, that's a shock. I think it's maybe. Four I tell years. myself it's two years, and it's not. Of course, you're right. That's terrible. Well, it's just it. I guess t- you know, t- time viewed as a proportion of our life is uh, is, yeah, is, is it's a relative thing. Terrible. I've I've kind of sat in the corner for a lot of that time, working, but just sitting mm. in the corner, thinking nothing much has moved. 
obviously we talked a little bit about sort of Donald Trump and so forth, but I was also thinking about, you know, the people we've lost, such as uh, so David Bowie, for instance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sometimes these things surprise us or make us react in different ways to what we might have expected. My, my first thought on that, my daughter told me, she sort of just kind of announced it very plainly, and I was profoundly shocked because, you know, she didn't, she didn't know to kind of prepare me for it. Look up here, I'm in heaven I've got scars that can't be seen On a musical level, it was a big deal for me as a writer. He was one of those voices in the 70s where you could see that the possibilities for the... For the future, lay in what he, in what he did. Not not just his, the voice or the or the um, individual songs, but the fact that he wasn't hung up on staying where he was. He wasn't so possessed of um, a sense that he was being authentic, which was a big thing in the seventies. That you were authentic. He played with the idea that you could present different versions of the world and yourself. And I love that. But on a, on a personal level, um, I met him only the once. And it was in the year 2000. And I, at that time of where I was in my life, I didn't want to gush mm. to him. And now I kind of wish I, I, wish I had. What did I, you say? What did you do? I, oh, well, I think I overplayed my hand in the wrong direction, to be honest. I kind of so I was trying to be, I didn't go, watch it, Dave, what do you do for a living? You know, <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't go that route. We were talking about he'd been to see some new bands or something mm. the night before. And I think it was a moment of intense weariness for me. And I just looked at him and I said, I can't be bothered. I said, do you still, can you still do that? And he says, oh, yeah. So he puts his cap on, his glasses, and a raincoat, and he stands in the back of some hall. And you know that he's checking out, or he was checking out the, um, what the kids are listening where to. Where were you when this happened? Where, where, what was the, I was, the, the, Tony, Tony Visconti, the producer, I was working with him. Right. And he said to me one day, um, would you like to go and see David? <clears throat> who was making a record. I believe it was called Toys. Toy, yes. Or Toy. I don't know whether it's out in the world. Someone said it to me. Never it, was a le- it was yeah. withdrawn. It was a legendary thing. And I went to see him. He was working in a small room at Philip Glass's studio, Glass Studios. And Tony and I went to see him and um, interrupted his working day. And he was very nice about it. But I always feel you go in a studio, you probably are interrupting someone's work. And he said to me, he said, can you spot the anachronism? I said, what? He was going to play me uh, some songs. One was new, and I think the other three were from the 60s, and they were mm-hmm. going to be on this record. Or maybe I've got the wrong way around, but anyway, he said, can you no, spot right. the anachronism? Is this right? Does this sound? Yeah, there were a few songs that he re- so re-recorded know- from his um, first album all around that time. Okay. okay, so he played me the songs. I managed to spot the anachronism, which was, um, the line was, I do believe in Beatles, because for those who don't know, there's a famous Lennon, well, most people who listen to you will know it, there's a famous Lennon song where he sings, I don't yeah. believe in Beatles, so I, 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 I yeah. spotted that. And then he, he, he launched into, I can't believe it's 20 years since John died. He says, I remember that night, and just at that moment, at that exact moment, he'd previously queued up um, some music. He'd got his engineer to play me something else. And this deafening song came over the speaker, so I never got to hear 
or his version of what he did that night. But it's in well, all yeah. the books. I think he was in he was in Elephant Man or what have you. But I was going to yeah, hear it yeah. directly for, from him. I did say it to him. I said, you know, you meant so much to me. Sometimes it's not the welcome thing to sort of tell someone that, you no. know. Yeah. You've got to judge it, haven't you? You don't want to give them the Groundhog Day sensation. You know, you don't want to bump bump into Bob Dylan and say, oh, man, Blood, um, Blood on the Tracks is fantastic. And so was Blonde on Blonde. What were you thinking when you did Blonde on Blonde? Because really, you know, that's kind of, it's just poor guys who've had it, ears with it. And yet at the same time, you want to, you don't want to be so casual that you can't say like you like something. I was just reminded of, um, uh, of a story that um, Ian Brody told me from The Lightning Seeds. And he was friends with... Um, Charlene Spiteri from oh, yeah. Texas. Yeah. And Charlene Spiteri is friends with Paul McCartney. And sometimes they used to go and see Chelsea. Right, right. And uh, long story short, you know, sort of Ian, who was an obsessive Beatles yes, fan, yeah. found himself in this kind of group of three with Paul and just found himself just sort of lost for words every time. It just could not relax, could not relax. And eventually, uh, on the third or fourth occasion, Charlene... Named the elephant room sister. Ian, what's the matter with you? Why is it every time we're with Paul, you just turned into this buffoon? Yeah. And it was, it was kind of made it better in a way. It's a nervous thing. And um, I have, you know, I have met McCartney once, but it stayed with me. And I think that's maybe part of the problem that it's such a big deal for anyone of a certain age meeting him. And it's, it's probably there every time you see someone thinking, God, you're going to lay this whole what you've meant to me, what you mean to me, yeah. trip on him. But the brilliant thing about about McCartney was when I when I met him, I was determined that I wouldn't mention the Beatles, and he mentioned the Beatles. He just launched into a story about what how he didn't want to sound like the Beatles because he'd been in a group called the Beatles, and I found that quite interesting because I thought, hey, I didn't start this, you did. What year would this have been? This was 88 or 89. You're listening to the Needle Mythology podcast, hosted by myself, Pete Perfides, in conjunction with Flare Audio. I want to talk about I Troll the Megahertz, which uh, I'm so happy it's getting a vinyl release. Thank you. Because it feels like it's, it's across three sides, isn't it? With a, yes, it is. Which is yeah. kind of perfect. That's the only way it was really going to work, wasn't it? Yeah, it's too big for just a single you know, 12 inch. I was reading a little bit about it. I think you said something that was kind of forerunner to it called Doomed to Poets. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What would that have amounted I, I, to? I don't know. I think that there's a thing that goes on when you write mm. where you put all your energies into the writing. Mm. And if you then immediately go to record them, you could possibly capture the freshness of them. Or you might, if you were at all getting jaded, that's the moment when you will spoil all the good stuff. So I leapfrog from one project to the other. So Doomed Poets was a simpler record in the sense it would have been more conventional with songs. It would have been, you know, ten tracks or what have you. Mm. But it was moving in that kind of slightly orchestral direction. And I thought, rather than be half-hearted about this, just do a full thing where it's one atmosphere. Do 
do you feel more comfortable telling people what the sort of basic idea of the record is, or would you like me to summarise? I troll a megahertz. Yes. Well, I'll, I, well, I'll do my little bit. It sounds a little. It sounds like a cross between an audio book and some kind of film where you don't actually see the see the pictures. You have to imagine them. It's um, a long piece of music with a woman speaking over the top of it. Strange elliptical phrases that seem to refer to her childhood or the way she was brought up. For bliss in the arms. I think I wrote it because. I had eye surgery. Well, I know I wrote it because I had eye surgery. And had spent a lot of time lying down, just listening to things, not necessarily music, audio books, um, radio shows, radio programs, even phone-ins where people would complain about things, about their lives, and they'd pour it all out. Kind of pre-internet for this sort of thing. I don't think I could have done megahertz now because a lot of those people wouldn't be talking on Citizens Band Radio right. or on or in shows. They would be, they would just be pouring it out. So I took some of this stuff that I overheard and edited it together. The plane comes down behind enemy lines, and you don't speak the language. A girl takes pity on you. She is Mother Teresa walking among the poor, and her eyes have attained night vision. In an orchard, drenched in blue light, she changes your bandages and soothes you. All day her voice is balm, then she lowers you into the sunset. Hers is the wingspan of the quotidian angel, so her feet are sore from the walk to the well of human kindness, but she gives you a name and you grow into it. Basically, I feel as if I was trying to make a record that I wish I'd had to listen when I was ill. I was trying to make something hmm. that, relating back to when I'd been infirm, as it were. You were about to become a father, is that right, at that point? I had become a father, and I was about to become a father again. Let me get this right. Yeah, I had children, I had eye surgery, um, lots of changes in in my life around about that time. But the main one being not being able to sit up and... You know, when you sometimes when you have eye surgery, they tell you not to lean forward because you're tugging. The retina has been tugged at yeah. if you lean forward. So you have to stay back. It's kind of authorised laziness. Records have been made before, usually songs, uh, which sort of tap into the mystical power of radio. Maybe like Wavelength by Van Morrison. Van Morrison's done a few now that I think of it, also in the days before rock and roll. And um, this does it too in a different way. It borrows from radio and then kind of also, also kind of gives it back by turning it back yeah. into something transmittable. I was sort of fascinated by that because uh, I love listening to the radio. And um, when I was nine or ten and I became obsessed with music, I sort of felt like it was within my reach to find and listen to and procure every single great piece of music ever made. I, in my naivety, I thought that was achievable. And now I, I realise that it isn't. And it kind of bothers me sometimes that I can listen to the radio and just through serendipity, if I listen to the radio at 6 o'clock rather than 6.30, a different thing will happen. Do you not feel, though, in the internet age that, that, what you, that your childhood dream is more achievable in a way? You need to know what to look for, but it's, it is kind of there. Mm. I feel like it's... Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm never going to listen to every great piece of music that, that was ever made. No, no. But so I'm just kind of like... Grasping into the ether, and I've got you. Grabbing, I've got grabbing you. what I can. But it kind of bothers me that there are some amazing things that are just that you're never going to know about. Know, yeah. No, I, that's true. And I also think you know the age you mentioned 
you're not so time uh, conscious then. Mm. So you think that, you know, well, you're not even thinking that it might be possible to hear every great piece of music. It's just, it just doesn't seem impossible to you because you've not thought it. I had a similar thing where I would listen to, um, you know, as millions and millions of people did. You'd listen to those kind of late night shows, um, the John Peel things, whatever was considered after the... Um, you know, family viewing kind of. Yeah, after uh, the watershed, yeah. And you're going to get Tangerine Dream or whoever. Yeah. So you'd hear music that even though, even if it was not for you, it's it's the sense of possibilities that you, you got for it showed you that the world was bigger than the little corner that you had. Mm. And I used to love that. And I just think you sometimes, for me at least, I've, I've lost a lot of that. Um, but I think there may be people who aren't like that who, who will go through their life feeling uncynical about new things. Mm. And I think that's wonderful. Mm. I just don't happen to be that person. I've got one thing about the in, in relation to the record is it, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm interested in your relationship to control, uh-huh. and that also how that relates to your love of radio, which, like we were saying, is a medium over which, in a way, you have n- no control other yes. than to, to turn it on or off. And maybe there's something quite freeing in that because you know because of the randomness of the radio and the experience of the listener and the connecting cord between those two things is a kind of serendipity. Yeah. So if I listen to I'm 49, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. you know these these amazing fragments. Which had you been listening an hour later? Yeah, you mean like you'd have, I would have missed them you yeah. mean, on the radio. That is true, and also the the sort of uh, the serendipity of. Two people saying over and over again. They are different people on different broadcasts. So I was able to kind of find a comment on, or a, or a kind of a chorus effect from two different broadcasts. But I think that that stuff is achievable simply by the, the magic of chance. Mm. That if you listen long enough and you have an imaginative frame of mind, you could, I reckon, you know, this afternoon if we'd gone through a few channels and yeah. taken three bo- three sentences from someone and cr- cross-pollinated them <laughs> with someone else, you would get something. The guy, you know, the poor guy in the song, I'm 49, divorced. Yeah. It's sort of like, it's like a haiku. It's just the whole world. What's wrong? I'm 49, divorced. Are you falling apart? <laughs> it's, it's, it's there, and I'm laughing because it's sort of a really dark dark, humid record where you yeah. kind of go, you know what the guy's feeling, but it's still, this, what, what makes it vaguely, f- I don't know, what does make it vaguely funny? Nothing really, other than that it's the human condition yeah. condensed to three three words. But I guess uh, one of the, rec- the reasons reson- the record as a whole resonates, it does seem to sort of um, capture something about the human condition and humans in solitude. Yeah. Sort of alone, but not alone. Yeah, and the notion that you're pouring your heart out to someone. Yeah one-to-one, and yet someone might be taping it, as I was. Other people were listening in their cars. Someone is indifferent. I wasn't indifferent at all. The poor original woman, revoiced on the record by Yvonne Connors, what she said to her daughter is kind of heartbreaking. Your daddy loves you. He loves you very much. He just doesn't want to live with us anymore. It's like some terrible blues refrain. I said, your daddy loves you. I said, your daddy loves you very much. He just doesn't want to live with us anymore. It no. is. It, it is. I think that is the the moment in the, on the album, really, that sort of um, whatever you were thinking five seconds before, you're no longer thinking it. It just jolts you. And the, yeah. as a songwriter, you know, or a, or a composer, I guess you're looking to, to do that in different ways. You can get away with it as the composer or the collector of audio fragments. 
in a way that would have been a little too um, mawkish if I had written that as a lyricist. Finding it made it okay. I thought yeah. it was okay to use the phrase because it was real and I've put it in context. If I had written that in a song of my own, it would have sounded like a, like another line in the piece, um, like a, oh, a yes. country song. I can't even a remember what the line. A character in a country in a, song. A character in a country song. Yeah. Lord, you gave me nothing, you took it all away. It would have felt just a little bit too, too, too much. Only by an extreme act of will can I avoid becoming a character in a country song. Lord, you gave me nothing, then you took it all away. And did that line of thought sort of inform the decision to choose Yvonne to voice the piece in the first place? For obscure reasons, I had wanted to make a record that I could listen to that wasn't me. Yeah. And that's impossible. But I've learnt now that your fingerprints are on everything. You sit, even if you don't sing it, you've, you've instigated it, you've basically written it by collecting the things. You're revealing something about yourself by your choice of the language. And... I needed the unifying voice because um, otherwise it was just fragments of male voices and female voices and a lot of my own thoughts. I'd mm. kind of, I'd, I'd joined the dots of the story, as it were. Personally, I'd kind of put them together, filled in the gaps. And um, I thought a, a kind of character had evolved through, through all the prose being linked together. And I angled it slightly. She's a bit new agey. Yeah. She's, she's a bit like she's listened, she's read an Elizabeth Smart book called By Grand Central Station. I sat down and wept. It's a little precious at times. It's poetic in a kind of little, maybe a little overripe way. But I thought this is, this is okay. And I, when I said to my wife, she, she had a friend who um, knew uh, people in various drama circles. And she said to me, I'll ask my friend. And she, the first person that um, Lucy Cuthbertson thought of was um, Yvonne Connors, who is a commodities broker and may still be, for all I know, Canadian lady. And um, as soon as I heard her, <laughs> heard her voice, and it was brilliant. So was she a commodities broker then as well? Yeah, she was. She was. Hi, this is Yvonne Connors. I hear you want to, Paddy, you want to, look, you want to talk to me? And I was like, whoa. That's the, that's the voice there. And to light a candle at the shrine of amnesia. I could even cheat. And was she not phased by the, what you were proposing? I didn't play the music. Um, I think she trusted me, so I met her in a hotel in, in Kensington, which is, it is a strange thing to do, and I took my dat recorder and I took my mini disc as a sort of insurance and did and recorded on both things very badly. It has to be said, but there we go, you live and learn. And um, I just gave her the prose, the sheets of the lines. And um, the one instruction I had to give her was to slow down. I feel as if I was more gung-ho then, back in 1999. Uh, I was more gung-ho and just thought, this can work. I just made it work. Well, you would be brave because it's a record that really ventures out into fresh snowfall. You know, you, you had nothing to emulate in a way. No, I felt it wasn't like, any, from your introduction, I know it's a big thing to say that it's not like any other record. There are zillions of records. You know, you've just got to buy The Wire magazine and it'll be full of records that are, are um, you know, where they've used static, they've used radio samples. And that's great. And that had been going on for years before I got near it. You've got Talking Heads, you've got Brian Eno, apart from the, the obvious the people, the minimalist characters yeah. who would take things. So it was all there. But I'm not sure that I heard, I've heard anything like it either. Not, it hasn't been played to me. You 
You're listening to the Needle Mythology podcast, hosted by myself, Pete Pavides, in conjunction with Flair Audio. I Troll the Megahertz is, I think most of us who listen to it, you know, feel like it's an emotional record. I would imagine, because of the circumstances in which it was made, maybe there was emotional stuff sort of happening with you. But I couldn't say with any certainty whether or not these pieces were sort of proxy for want of a less clinical word to repositories for the for your, your own problems or something yeah or intense feelings or you know the the tumult of change in your life you never know the sort of the wellspring of this stuff you know you, you can kind of write a song and the lyric can be oblique or it can relate directly you can speak as plainly as possible about things or you can, you know, and you know, in um, is it? I'm, I, I can't even remember the title of it. The lyric is, "I'm lost, yes, I'm lost." Sleeping rough. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sleeping rough. I, I have to say, I assigned titles after I'd made a lot of those things. If you mention a title to me, I don't immediately know right. which track it is, other than the title track. Yeah. I'm lost. Yeah. There are things that were, it seems like more of a personal statement and probably was. I didn't have a long white beard then, but yeah. I, I kind of have ended, have ended up with it. And you probably a little feeling of feeling sorry for yourself when you're lying with, you know, recovering from your eye surgery, which in the grand scheme of things wasn't that dramatic. But the radio broadcasts, you kind of just hear that everybody, everybody out there has a mess of problems, as Elvis might have said. Yeah. They have a mess of problems. And there is something cathartic and sticking them together. It's like a gi- to me, it's like a giant blues record that has nothing to yeah. do with E7, you know, A7 and B. It's kind <laughs> of... And duty will not track me down. I feel like, um, you know, the records we love are often sort of um, little external hard drives for our emotions. Do you know yeah, what? yeah. No, I, 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 get, I get that. For me... When I finished it, I remember I had to go to Japan. I was doing some promotion for a, a best of that was sort of the end of the last century. Yeah. And I went there for a couple of days and I took a, a mini disc of my, my demo of it, which is, it's a Vaughn as she is on the finished record. There are no strings on it. It's just me and synthesizers mm. and, and her. And so it's pretty close to the finished product. And you go to Japan, you're your body clock's different. And I couldn't mm. sleep during the night. And I listened to it and listened to it and got everything out of it that I wanted. And then the funny thing is you do put things away simply so that you can move on and you forget about it. I, d- I don't think I listened to Megahertz between 2002 and 2000 and possibly 14. I know I'm on slightly dodgy territory because I hadn't realized it was five years since we last met. So I could be slightly off, but it was like a major, major gap in things. So when I put it on, for, the, for this new, you know, the new playing of it, I was slightly shocked to just kind of hear where it was going. Even though you've written it, you don't always remember where it's going until you hear it. (laughs) 
That happens with lyrics in Steve McQueen. There's a song I've not heard in 10 years. I'll put that on and think, where's he going with this? Then you get that shock of intense recognition mixed with you didn't know where that was headed. And that's a very strange feeling. So Megahertz for me is a sort of an intense moment. Mm. It kind of meant everything for a very brief period. And now, if I'm honest, the big problem is you start to see things with a what should I have done differently or how could I have made it better? But that's just, that's, yeah. you don't know how that is. That's just, you, you could always do something better, you think, you know. You know, it's like, you know, Kate Bush recording, re-recording Wuthering Heights and, you know, yeah, very yeah, probably very few people wanted her to re-record. That is an interesting thing because I often feel that I like to redo various things or sing them differently, play them differently. But songs, that they are like flypaper. It's not a very, very pretty analogy. They are like flypaper for the time in which they were heard. I get lots of people who come up to me and they will describe holidays that they have been on where yeah. they listen to a certain record. And I can see that look in their eyes. It's almost as if they thought you were on holiday with them. <laughs> Which in a sense, you you know what I mean? In a sense, you were on that beach when yeah. they were listening to this yeah. track. And yet, so I get it because I'm the same thing. I think of, you know, I think of something, you know, that I heard when I was 11 or 12. And uh, the the memories and the atmosphere of the time have coalesced around hmm. someone, someone's melody or words. We're almost out of time. And actually, I was going to ask you about uh, to, oh, yeah. to, 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 to met, if there was another record that you wanted to just to pick around. I don't even know sure. if you got the message. I did get the message. Was it what influenced Megahertz? Was that the maybe general tenor a of it? I mean, it doesn't have to be, but I was thinking maybe a record without which... There's always the example. I mean, the, the obvious one is something like Low by David Bowie, where you see a certain balance of songs with vocals on against songs that are instrumentals. There's a, there's a kind of um, yeah. history you can see there. There are other things that I, um, that I didn't really directly r- relate to what I was doing. And in fact, um, I don't really see much similarity at all. But, at the, but there's a feeling, um, well, there is a connection. The record I'm thinking of is Gavin Bryer's uh, Jesus oh, blood never failed, failed me yet. Yeah, yeah. Where you have the poignance of someone singing um, on the street, and because a composer grabs a hold of that vocal and builds an arrangement around it, there's the interaction between the lone voice mm. of, the, of the vagrant or the drunk guy, whatever he's doing, and what Gavin Bryce has done to it. So I feel that there is a con- there is a kind of connection there with. Um, especially with that phrase that we referred to earlier about yeah, me, Daddy Loves You, where you've just taken it from a radio broadcast. These yeah. are records that are important as well, with the Gavin Bryars, and I know... Uh, Do you like that? Do you like that? Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, also, with you mentioned, um, we spoke years and years ago, and you mentioned uh, Stevie Wonder's Journey Through the Secret oh, Life of Plants. Really? Years ago. So you were, you oh, yeah, yeah. But nice. again, you know, these records are important, because yeah, I would imagine I love that. I love that. for someone like yourself, because they, they tell you kind of what's achievable and you sort of almost might think that well if Stevie Wonder felt brave enough to that, but that's true I had never you know maybe I've just forgotten it the connection between the, the blind man doing a soundtrack that's what you're talking about really there is that there is that which of course all my enjoyment of the record was mainly, was mainly centred on the strangeness not so much of that idea as that he hadn't made a record that kind of uh, was pretending to be some sort of funky excursion that was going to go down big on the street. It was sort of, I think he quickly recovered from from maybe the shock that uh, that uh, Secret Life of Plants that it made, engendered. But, yeah, that it engendered and he made on to do, went on to do very quickly to do Hotter Than July, which was a kind of more sound bet. But I just thought it was a tremendously strange project to do and beautiful because of that, even almost irrespective of what he did, it was such a lovely, lovely idea. Absolutely, and it's an incredible record. I can't conceive 
I noticed a while ago, someone told me actually that I Troll the Megahertz had appeared on Spotify under a, under somewhat, under another name oh, really? uh, called Quoted Out of Context. Ah, uh, that's, um, that is um, uh, Joachim Milder's cover version. But for a while, it was, wasn't it? No, he, he's, an, he's, an, he's, an, he's an artist himself. He came to Newcastle and did a, a whole series of, um, he was playing on a bill that was part Charlie Parker, part Prefab Sprout, amazingly. And he, he, he does a whole album. Quoted Out of Context is an album of my songs with him playing his okay. uh, saxophone. It's, it, I say it myself. It's, it's great in, it, in its kind of melodic uh, faithfulness to the tunes. It's lovely. And weirdly enough, it kind of reminded me of the Stevie Wonder album. Um, it almost felt like a kind of, of a circular connecting kind of tissue. I've got you. I've got to ask you this: this photograph we saw a couple of years ago yeah. with um, Spike. Y- Spike Lee. Yeah. What, what was going on there? Spike and his brother had written um, a movie, a kind of musical. All my songs were in there. On every page was a lyric sheet. The script was mm. packed with um, lyrics, mm. and they wanted my permission. Could they make a film of it? And I said yes. But uh, whether it'll happen or not, it's the movie world. But Spike had been introduced to the music by his brother Chinque. And Spike's a fan. Spike's now a fan. He said, he said to me, um, full disclosure, never heard of you. Um, I said, that's okay. I said, oh, you know, you're busy doing other things. But his brother had showed him this, and he says, I've got them all now. I've got them all. I've got the albums. That's amazing, isn't it? And, well, why wouldn't he? Um, Paddy, I know you've got to get your train. I'd be mortified if you missed your I'm train because really of sorry. me. You've been listening to the Needle Mythology podcast. Paddy McAloon, thank you. It's been lovely to spend an hour here. Thank you, Pete. Always thank a pleasure. You. Thank you. Great big owl.